Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us immensely by allowing us to come and worship you. You have given us your word. You've been you've given us your Holy Spirit, which illuminates your word through our hearts, causes us to be alive in you. Father, it is my desire to know you more, to understand you more, to make you known more. Because, Lord, I know that in understanding and in knowing that you would receive great glory, the glory that is due your name, Father, we can't do this on our own. Lord, speak to us today. Bless us once again. Pray this in Jesus' name. I am the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. My goal today is is going to be to try to explain the unexplainable. To try to reveal the enigma enigma of this opening verse. I am the good shepherd. To try and show why Jesus is the good shepherd. And even what he meant by his sheep. He didn't just use these words off the cuff. There's meaning behind them. But we are so indoctrinated, so exposed to Christianity that we seem to be immune from the healing power that it contains. Our verses today are part of an illustration. An illustration that Jesus was making to a group of people who knew sheep, who were used to to sheep. None of what he was saying was groundbreaking or earth-shattering to them. There's a couple reasons why it wasn't groundbreaking or earth-shattering to them. The first is that they weren't of the flock of God, something that Jesus has already told them. And the other reason is because they were so used to sheep and how they were cared for that they missed the meaning and message that Jesus was making in this illustration. But did you notice that Jesus did not say that he was the good hunter? Searching and seeking for those lone wolves. Or that he was the good aviator. Providing for, caring for those lone birds. There is a specific reason that Jesus used sheep and shepherding in this illustration. But because we've been so indoctrinated, exposed to a very casual form of Christianity, we read this section, of, this section of Scripture and don't even wonder at why Jesus would speak of himself as the good shepherd. And even the importance of us being sheep. But sheep are like goats in that they don't do well alone. They thrive within a community, within a herd, a flock. 
This has been the way that sheep have always been, except until this last century. Because a very strange thing started happening with the advent of Finney and his pragmatic method of presenting his gospel. At that point, sheep began to evolve from herd animals to loners. This has continued to the point that church membership is now at an all-time low. And there are many places that call themselves churches that don't even have membership. Their sheep are this evolved type, the type that are lone ranger sheep, that have fragmented and personalized Jesus. He is no longer the good shepherd. He is now the good hunter. The importance of the church has been lost on this generation. The uniqueness of the church has been bastardized in our culture. The centrality of the church and the mind of Christ has all but been lost in the preaching and teaching within what is now called the church. But this was not the message of Christ. This was never his intended teaching or intent. The centrality of the church and the message of Christ cannot be mistaken or missed. Every epistle written is written to a church. It's not written to you, to individuals. It's written to a church. The letter that we call Revelation was written to the church. And its warnings found in chapters 2 and 3 are written to churches. And even those pastoral letters, even though they are written to specific people, they are written to them concerning the church. It's within those letters that we find the qualifications for elders and deacons within those letters that are written to individuals. Before Christ went to the cross, before he was arrested and tortured for your sin, he had the church on his mind. Matthew 18, 17. He said, if, if he, talking to about a brother, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A couple chapters before in the, math, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's an account of Jesus asking his disciples about who people thought that he was. Matthew 16. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others said Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Blessed are you, Peter, because God has revealed to you that I am the Christ. And upon this rock, not you, but the rock of the truth of who I am, I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. And to the church he gave the keys of the kingdom, the binding and the loosening. Well, what exactly are those things? What does that mean? 
The keys of the kingdom and the binding and the loosing are one and the same. It was on this truth that the reformers rightly stated that there is no salvation outside of the church. Is that shocking to your ears? This proves just how individualistic we are and how far our understanding is in the importance of the church in the life of the redeemed. The binding and the loosening that happens here within the church happens is nothing more than a physical manifestation of the reality that has already taken place in heaven. Entrance into the church happens through baptism after salvation. This is the loosening, as is membership into a true church. The binding happens to all who are outside of the church, who have not joined with her or have been excommunicated from her. The church doesn't save a person. Baptism doesn't save a person. Membership does not save a person. But obedience is the proof of salvation. And baptism is the first act of obedience in the life of the sheep as they enter into the covenant with God and his church. And they are to remain in this covenant until they're taken home under the care, love, and discipline of the church. We have been sold a bill of good, folks, and we must renew our minds by the washing of the word and then force our self-centered, narcissistic, me-mentality minds to submit to the truth of God's word because we are saved individually. But to become part of the body of Christ, the flock of God, not a universal once and for all time body, meaning that we are brothers and sisters with all those that have ever come to Christ, but that we don't need to be a member of a local body. That local body that will impose upon my freedom, that will impede on my quest of self-exaltation, that will hinder my devotion to self-freedoms, self-expression, self-fulfillment. As proof of this, we have 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. To the church of God that's at Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with all who are in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Who is this letter written to? This letter that we call 1 Corinthians it was written to the church in Corinth. A church that was having issues with people desiring to act individually and not for the corporate good. And here, Paul moves us and them from the reality of being part of the cosmic body of Christ to the reality that being part of that cosmic body means that we must be part of a local body here. And if we're not willing to submit, submit ourselves to this truth, then the truth of verse 11, the opening verse of this sermon is lost on us, and we are lost to it. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is standing in the midst of a crowd who are gathered around him and that once blind man. And in that crowd, there were the shepherds of the flock of God, and even the flock of God itself. And to this flock, to those shepherds, he tells this truth. And what Jesus has just told these people, 
What he has just said is mind-blowing, earth-shattering, world-changing. I am, ego and me. He is God. You're sitting there saying, yeah, I, I get that Jesus is God. But we really don't get that. The maker and creator of the universe, of everything that we see, that we hear, that we feel and know, he was standing there on that day, clothed in humanity, confined to our reality by our reality. This is what makes what he said so amazing. Because when God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 3.14, he said to Moses, I am who I am. He told Moses to tell the Israelites that I am sent him. He wasn't trying to be cute in doing this, not trying to be vague or spiritual. Because the best explanation of what I am means is I am. It's still that way. But God desiring us to know him and the salvation that he has for us condescended to leave his heavenly spiritual realm leave the unconfined vast expanse of that realm and step down into our realm in order that we can know more intimately what and who this i am is the old testament god revealed himself as i am that i am here, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This I am is the food and drink of our eternal bodies, the ones that they crave, the only food and drink that will satisfy our eternal hunger and satiate our eternal thirst. Outside of him, we will starve to death and die of dehydration. John 8, 12, again Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This I am. This I am is the light of our lives. He alone gives us hope to carry on. In him and because of him, we have our path illuminated, our eternal heavenly path. And he's not just a flashlight or an LED bulb. He doesn't just light up this path for us a little bit. Just like on that day in creation when he said, let there be light, and there was light. That's how he lights up our eternal path for him or for us. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, before I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This I am. He's eternal. He's not what we can comprehend. He's bound by flesh, but he transcends this flesh. He's bound by our realm, and yet he controls and even created our realm. Don't get too comfortable with this I am, because he is not your I am. He is his I am. And you are his, not the other way around. John 10, 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. This I am. 
He is the mediator and means for reconciliation with the Father. The fact that he states that he is the door is proof that we need reconciliation, that we are outside of and opposed to the Father, that we cannot find our way back into the good graces of God on our own. Otherwise, we don't need a door. If we could accept the salvation of God on our own, or if we could work our way back into his family, then we would just need a map or a set of instructions. He is not the map. He is not the instructions. He is the door. And only through him can his sheep enter into the pastures of his father. And then John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This I am. That he tells these folks on this day that ego and me is the good shepherd that he made this statement should have triggered memories in the minds of those shepherds standing there. He's the good shepherd, and he has given them in contrast to the shepherds that he warned of in Ezekiel 34. You might want to grab your Bible and turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Verses 1 through 10. The word Yahweh came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says Yahweh God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they were became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, Hear the word of Yahweh, as I live, declares the Yahweh God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. These shepherds, these men had not cared for, tended to, searched out and fed the sheep of God. They took their exalted position as shepherd and determined to care for themselves, to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to exalt themselves. This is not what the shepherds of God were to do, how they were to act. And this is why the I am compares himself with them in one specific overarching way. I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for my sheep. Verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand 
and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. John Calvin, in quoting Augustine concerning these verses, stated that what is being laid out before us in verse 12 and 13 are the things that true sheep should desire, what they should run from and run to. Both Calvin and Augustine would have never have had a hard time answering the question if truly regenerate people could stay within a false church. Within a false church. They rightly understood that Christ is the good shepherd and that all that are of his flock hear his voice and follow him. They will not follow a bad shepherd. They will not remain where they do not hear his voice. And in these verses, Christ is laying the groundwork for his under-shepherds. How they, we, I, am to act. He's the perfect example of the good shepherd. The expectation is now that all that act as under-shepherds under him will act as he has. They will care for his people as he does. They will love his people as he does. And they will give of themselves for his people as he has. But that's not to say that an elder can make salvation possible for anybody, even himself. He's charged with being obedient to his master, to the one and only true shepherd who is his shepherd. But his life is to be marked by, measured by, the obedience to his master, which is fleshed out in the care and means that he tends to, tends to and feeds the sheep that are under his care. In verse 12, we're given one way that you can spot a hireling and not an under-shepherd. They desire to claim that which is not theirs. These are my sheep. There's a huge difference between having a concern and care for the lives of those the Lord has put in your charge and then actingly, acting possessively concerning them. And don't be fooled into thinking that these hirelings actually care for these sheep. That they act that they are act like I'm sorry, that they are acting like are theirs. These are my people. He, that false under shepherd, they are finding their value, their worth in the numbers of sheep that they are shepherding. The size of the flock determines the size of their ego, and the size of the flock also determines the size of their income as well. They are not their sheep. You are not my sheep. I am not my own sheep. They, you, me, we all belong to the good shepherd, and he will lead, direct, and guide his sheep as he deems best. But the Lord will require the sheep under our care at our hands. They, those false shepherds, we, me, I will answer for the state of that flock. I will answer for you, for what food I feed you, the quantity and quality of the food that I feed you. James 3.1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
And then Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. These warnings, these truths, should terrify those who play at elder, who lead by pragmatism, who lie to boost numbers, who don't expect regeneration to be the hallmark of a church member, who care more about numbers than they do about the sheep themselves. Because the task of tending the flock of God is impossible. Outside of the good shepherd being the source, the life, the food and drink of the under-shepherd. Verses 12 and 13 prove this truth. These men who are not under-shepherds but desire that position but don't truly care for the sheep, they will lead the sheep wrongly. And then they will abandon them to the wolves, allowing them to be picked off, pulled apart, and devoured on their watch. And they do this because they themselves are not part of the flock of God. They do not have the I am as their good shepherd. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Verse 14 begins by telling us once again that the I am is the good shepherd. Christ wants us to know something about him. The good shepherd part of this, of this statement is an expansion of, a revealing of who and what that I am is. Because he tells us about the nature of who this I am is. He's a knowing I am. He knows his own. He this I am is the only shepherd that can rightfully lay claim to the sheep. And he alone can do this because he alone laid his life down for them. His under shepherds, those that have come after him, may die for the flock, may die in service to the flock, but they don't lay their lives down for the flock. They are doing that for the under shepherd. And these verses also tie back into the revelation of the I am that compared himself to the wicked shepherds from Ezekiel 34. Verses 1 through 10 speak of the bad shepherds. But then in Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 11, the prophet then begins to tell us about the good shepherd. He says, For thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that, he, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on that day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain, high mountains of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares Yahweh God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, 
and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. He knows his sheep, and they will know him in the same way and manner that the Father knows him, and he knows the Father. That's the second part of verse 16. And once again, the I am is being revealed to us in a greater way. The Father knows Jesus. Jesus knows the Father. Jesus knows the sheep. And the sheep know Jesus. Can you see the centrality of Christ as the means to the Father? We can know the Father because we are known by the Son. And it is only through Him that this can happen. Verse 16 also contains another amazing truth that I highlighted at the beginning of this sermon. Goats are never transformed into sheep as individuals to be individuals, to be lone ranger sheep, having their own personal relationship with Jesus living separate from all other sheep, feeding themselves on their own quiet time. They were called out of darkness and into light, transformed from goats to sheep to be part of a flock, one flock, one shepherd. The centrality of the church as the life of the sheep can also be seen in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, beginning in verse 17. Again, verses 1 through 10, God deals with the false under-shepherds contrasting them with himself. Verses 11 through 16, he tells how he cares for the sheep. And then beginning in verse 17, he specifically begins to speak to that flock, to the church, and he deals with it. He says, As for you, my flock, thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says Yahweh God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock and they will no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. Outside of sheep being part of a flock, these verses make no sense. And outside of church membership, the church as a flock makes no sense. How is an under-shepherd to know who are the sheep that he's responsible for if sheep wander in and out? How am I to know who am I responsible for? Those that just show up today, are this the ones that I'm responsible for, that I will be answering for? You here because you're here today? How do I then follow the example of the good shepherd and correct and discipline a wayward sheep? 
How then am I supposed to know if I'm supposed to leave the 99 and go after the one, if the 99 and the one all come and go as they please? Here, verse 16, once again. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. The good shepherd then makes a statement that it would pique their minds, as it has many people throughout the centuries. What did he mean that he had sheep that were not of this fold? Well, you're sitting there saying, well, he means us, the Gentiles. Well, the funny thing is, is there have been theologians in this past century that have tried to use this verse to say that Jesus has sheep on other planets, that he has alien sheep. Unfortunately for those Mensa members, there's nothing within the Bible that, can, that will corroborate that understanding of this verse. But there are, however, many verses from the beginning to the end of the Bible that speaks of the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one people under God, such as Genesis 12, 3, when God told Abraham, and in all the families of the earth will be blessed by you. And then Romans 11, when Paul is speaking to the Christians there, and he says, if some of you branches were broken off, if, I'm sorry, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them in the rich root of the olive tree. One family. We can rightly say that he was, it was the Gentiles that he was speaking of here in this sentence. But as wonderful as that truth is, we are forced to think through the rest of what he says here. Other sheep that are not of this fold, who will listen to his voice and who he must bring. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, there was already a flock at that time with his sheep within it. It was that religion that these false shepherds standing around Jesus were ministers and guardians of. And there were sheep in that fold. The disciples were of that fold as was Mary and Simeon the priest and even Anna the prophetess of Luke 2. And Jesus was leading these sheep, and these sheep were listening to his voice. And there were covenants given to this flock, irrevocable ones. Since these are truths, doesn't this mean that we should have converted to Judaism? Isn't that the one true flock? Isn't the law of the Lord perfect, reviving the soul? Didn't Jesus himself say that not one jot or tittle of the law would be abolished? This was the thought of many Jewish sheep after the ascension of Christ. This was the argument within the first century church as the apostles taught and led from Jerusalem. And why we have letters such as the one written to the church in Galatia, a church that was being swayed away from the true God, the true gospel, and back into Judaism. Yes, Jesus did say those things. That's Matthew 5, 18. But listen to what he said in context. He said, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. This flock, the one that he would bring those other sheep with him to, that flock was outside of the old covenant. Don't hear me wrong about this. We celebrate the reformers. God used them to bring his church out from a false church. And we can clearly state that if you're not reformed, then you're not a Christian. You would be part of that old religion that had taken the word of God and used it to make a religious dynasty centered on a false god. But just as the Roman Catholics had taken the pure word of God and perverted it, added to it, changed it to mean what it didn't mean, had elevated the office of shepherd to an exalted point, a point where they called him now Pope. The same thing had occurred within the nation Israel, Israel prior to the time of Jesus. They had taken the pure word of God and added to it. John Calvin, Martin Luther were the reformers. But Jesus is the original reformer. This is what he means in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. This is the fulfilling of the law and the prophets. He did not come to abolish them, to set us free from the Ten Commandments, to set us free from the sovereign rule of God. He came to set us free in them. We are told in Galatians 3, 10 through 14, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So then Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is just one more layer in the incomprehensible goodness of the good shepherd. The law is a schoolmaster driving us to the end of ourselves, showing us that we can't keep it, that we can't be righteous, that we need a savior. And in the I am, the law is accomplished. The fold that Christ brought these other sheep into was the true Israel of God. The one that is spoken of over and again throughout the old covenant and even into the new. One fold, one shepherd, and really one covenant. For the new covenant swallowed up the old within itself. The new covenant can best be understood by those I am statements of Jesus. In the old covenant, God explained himself in terms of himself. I am that I am. He was pointing forward to the coming of the I am. In the new covenant, God has fleshed himself out in himself. In the person of Jesus, the one that did not come to abolish the old descriptors of himself, but to fulfill to flesh out, to make known these descriptors in himself. This is why we, the sheep of his flock, still read, follow, and obey the old covenant. 
This I am that is standing there is the illumination of the original I am in Exodus. The new covenant is the full revelation and illumination of the old covenant given to the Israel of God, to the flock of God. The I am that is the good shepherd is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. How important is this truth? Well, listen to verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Saints, dear ones, behold your God. Jesus has said that he has come for judgment. That he has said that he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He said that he came to reveal the Father. And all this happens in the person of Jesus. Our just judgment, the eternal wrath of God being hurled at us for our eternal treason against God, was hurled upon Jesus. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The explaining, the fleshing out, the revealing of the true meaning of the law and the prophets all happen in the person of Jesus. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And the revelation and the true nature of God, his character, his personality, this too happens and is explained to us in the person of Jesus. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The rescue of his sheep, the propitiation of their sins, the breaking out of the sheep in both the original flock and the other flock, melding them into one, one in him, one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. This is the meaning behind Christ coming as our guide, as our example. And if you desire to know what love looks like, if you desire to know how God loves, what the definition of love is, you have to look at the person of Jesus, who has been revealed, I'm sorry, he has revealed the Father to us. The Father loves his Son, and the love that your Savior has for you is tied up in that love, bound up in that love, centered in and on that love of the Father. And this is great news for us, simply because there's nothing lovely in any of us. Here again, the narcissism of humanity is on full display. Because each of us are sitting there thinking, well, that's not entirely true. Now, that person over there, they have nothing to love. But me? I totally deserve to be loved. I mean, look at me. Look how pretty I am. Look how well-dressed I am. Look how well-mannered I am. But God sees us for the reality of who we are. When he and all the heavenly beings see you and me, they see us as who we really are. They see your sin. 
They see that you are a breed apart, that you are a zombie, and that you're so dead that you don't even know that you're a rotting, stinking corpse. Everything that is not loving. And before you're saved, this is how Jesus sees you. And yet, because of the love of his Father, the love of his Father in giving him a people, us, you, me, he sees the reality of who you will be once he brings you back into the fold, back into the flock, once he gives you ears to hear his voice. He sees you in the love of the Father, and the Father sees you in his beloved Son. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Which brings us to verse 18. He says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. On that day, standing around Jesus were many who were not of his flock, of his fold. And to be quite honest, they couldn't care less about the true meaning behind what he was saying. They could not care less that he had just said that he would lay down his life for the sheep. Big deal. But then there were those of his flock, of his fold, that were there. The disciples were standing there. That once blind man was standing there. They cared. And for them to hear this statement, this would have been shocking to their core. This was, after all, their Messiah. They knew him as the Messiah, the fulfilling of the promises of the prophets and the laws. They placed all their hopes and dreams in him. And he just told them that he was going to lay his life down for the sheep. Their Messiah was going to die. And in him, their hopes and faith could die as well. Folks, this is love. This is demonstration of love. He didn't hide reality from them, even when he knew that they couldn't really truly understand or grasp this reality. He never kept his imminent death from his sheep. He told them the truth. And he comforted his flock, his sheep, those men standing there on that day with these words. And he desires to comfort you as you sit here on this day with these words. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I am not a victim that needs an advocate. In my arrest, in my disgrace, in my beating, in my crucifixion, in my death, I am the victor. Wait, that sounds delusional. Like the ramblings of a child that doesn't understand how reality works. Exactly. We are that child. We really don't understand how reality works, but Jesus does. And this is what the next statement means. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Saints, think. Engage your mind. What does he mean? There is much more to this statement than Jesus just telling these guys that they had, those priests, that they had no authority over him. 
This charge he had been given from his father. What charge? The charge to lay his life down and then to take it back up again. Well, why is this so important? Why is it that important to us? Well, you'll answer because in his laying down his life, he took the sins of his people. It's important so that we could be saved, redeemed. 1 John 3.16 seems to back this up, which says, By this way we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But the death of Christ didn't purchase us. It was him taking the full wrath and fury of the eternal judgment for our sins that did that. In his death, he gave up the spirit, which then transported him into the eternal realm where he then purchased us with his eternal body. He laid down his mortal body for the same reason that he took on the mortal body. We need to wrestle with this. We need to think this through. What was the reason that he took on a mortal body? This is important in understanding who this I am, this good shepherd is, what he means by this. John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, we can say that he came in order that we could see his glory. The glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But why? The answer to this question is found in what Jesus said concerning the law and the prophets. And why we know that they are not two separate groups in the kingdom of God. No matter what dispensational wants to tell you, there are not two paths to heaven. Not two flocks. Just one. Listen to what he told us. God threw Paul in his word. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, and was the man, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Well, that's not helpful. That's about as clear as mud in explaining this. Well, how about Revelation chapter 21, verse 5 through 7? And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Christ came 
in human form to make all things new. This creation was not an afterthought. The making of man was not plan B. The church was not plan B. Christ came as the last Adam to redeem the first Adam, to set him free from the penalty of sin. 1 Corinthians 15 50-57, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. But for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, the I Am, who is the Good Shepherd, through whom and in whom we have victory in the real life that is to come where our good shepherd is leading us to. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He is the good shepherd, he has gone through the valley of the shadow of death. And he came out the other side victorious. And that is where he is leading us from. He is the good shepherd. And we are the sheep of his pasture. Death has been swallowed up in Christ. We have nothing to fear in this life or the life to come because of the Good Shepherd. Saints, behold your God, the I Am that is the Good Shepherd, who has called you to be part of his flock. I pray that you will see how much value it is in being his sheep to the point that you will not forsake his flock. Let's pray. Father,